You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, what a great day to be at North Canton Chapel, am I right? It's a good day. Yeah, that's worth it. Go for it. You're fine. We have this Clark Kent changing booth back there for those of you who are curious about that sort of thing. It's really quick. So, um, hey, here's the thing, like, kudos to you guys for filling up two trucks uh, for Habitat. That was something we, we sort of rolled the dice on, and we said, how's this going to go, God? And, like, look how he moved. This is incredible. And then today, right now, we've got 27 people going through our new members uh, class, our Membership Matters experience, which is incredible. Um, yeah. And so it's just so awesome to be here and to see how God is moving as we seek to make much of him every day to everyone. And it's a good place to be. So this is our second week of our four-week series in Nehemiah. And if you're just joining us, here's the idea. Uh, We started out 2020 evaluating our time, our talents, and our treasures. And we basically, for three weeks, asked God a question. We said, okay, how can I use the time that you have allocated to me, the talents that you've put into me, and the treasures that you've entrusted to me for your glory, not for my own. And we said, if there's any case study in the Old Testament for that, it's this old guy named... There you are. Sweet. So last week, we looked at Nehemiah's burden for his destroyed city. And we said that God's power shows up when our burdens line up. And then I asked you guys to consider three questions, and they're not these easy questions. They're questions you sort of have to wrestle with. The first one is, do you have a burden? Second question was, is your burden worthy? And then third, what are you going to give up for your burden? And those are not light questions, they're not easy questions, and they're questions that you have to answer on your own. And so this week is no different. We're going to look at the second slice of Nehemiah's story called A Common Vision, and I'm going to give you three more questions that I'm going to just like put out here, and I'll let you figure them out, but that'll happen after a little while. So today, as we look a, take a closer look at Nehemiah's vision for restoration, here's what I want you to see. I want to show you that when we seek God's glory consistently, we will see God's vision clearly. Say that again. When we seek God's glory consistently, we will see God's vision clearly. So before we get into Nehemiah today, you're welcome to turn there and get your finger going. But before we get there, I want to take a few minutes to hit some common problems that come up when we approach texts like this. And uh, so I'm willing to bet that there's a good number of us in this room We're a little intimidated by the idea of just like dropping right into these Old Testament places. We go, okay, what is this thing? There's really obscure people. There's really obscure names. Like this is not a very well-known time in history. And the book itself reads more like a book from your freshman history class than a book of the Bible. And um, so we look at this, we go, ah, how do I even approach this? And so I want to name just two kind of very common pitfalls before we get to our text today. So the first common pitfall is something I'm going to call killer bee mentality. Killer bee mentality. And here's how this works. We read these great old stories in the Old Testament about Abraham and Moses, like Sarah and Esther and Daniel and even Nehemiah. And we feel like this unspoken press that 
God is calling us to be like them. And like, that's the lesson. Just be more like these people. And I, I get that. It's, it's kind of a noble intention, but it's a little short-sighted. And here's why. I believe God's word is one story with one main protagonist, one person on the stage from beginning to end, and that person is God. I believe that when we put somebody else in center stage and move God to the side, some bad things can happen. And it may feel okay when we're looking at like Daniel and David and Moses and Esther and these really like godly saints. But when we move God to the side and put somebody else in the middle of the stage, guess who eventually becomes the center of the stage? Me, right? It's this killer bee mentality. And then God's word shifts from being the ultimate self-disclosure, from the ultimate being whoever existed, God, to being a self-help manual for me getting through life. That's very dangerous. Don't get me wrong, learning about Nehemiah is helpful, but the most beneficial thing for me to know about Nehemiah is what Nehemiah learned about God. To see God as he is, as he chose to disclose himself, is the most helpful thing for me. And so here's how to avoid a killer bee mentality. Just switch the question. Instead of asking, what does this text teach me about, insert biblical character here, flip the question to say, what does this text or this story or this verse or this poem teach me about God and how he wants to reveal himself to me? So that's how we're going to approach Nehemiah, and it's going to be how we'll handle the rest of his book. So a second common error that happens when we approach these Old Testament texts is that we sort of think that some places in Scripture are more valuable than other places in Scripture. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it might be a little indicting. But I remember a lot, I think a lot of us would probably say, hey, I'd rather read about Jesus in the Gospels than like this weird like buried in the sands of history stuff. And here's the counter kind of corrective for that. Here's what I believe. I believe that God's story, the Bible, is just like it's concerned with one character, it's concerned with one idea, and God has built his story or arranged the Bible around that one idea, and that one idea is restoration, that God is restoring a broken relationship. And so if you're brand new to following Christ or brand new to reading God's word, um, I think that the helpful thing for you might be to think about God's word broken up into five chunks or five segments, and so if you're taking notes, this is made something that uh, like cookies on the bottom shelf, like very accessible for you. So here we go. First is restoration announced. Restoration announced. And so God's word begins way back in Genesis with our spiritual great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, and they enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in the garden and nothing needed restored because nothing was broken yet. But then Adam and Eve said, you know what, God? We love you, but no thanks, we're gonna do things our way. And they broke the relationship because they chose sin over God's way. And then God says, you know what though? I love you, I'm gonna pursue you. And one day I'm gonna send you somebody who's gonna heal that fractured relationship. And this is the first whisper that we get of this promised one or this Messiah who's gonna come one day. This is restoration announced way back here. But then there's the second slice of the pie, which we call restoration anticipated. Restoration announced, restoration anticipated. And this is the rest of the Old Testament. It's the prophets, the kings, the poetry, the wisdom literature. Everything in here, like a millennia-long crescendo, is building towards something. It's anticipating something. So we've got it announced, and then restoration anticipated, and then wham, restoration accomplished. 
This is the gospel. And so here you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, all four writers taking these unique perspectives of Jesus' life, and their main point is to say, Jesus accomplished the restoration that everything has led to. Because he died a perfect death and lived a perfect life, he was a spotless sacrifice, and he achieved and accomplished this restoration that has been talked about for millennia. That's the third slice. But then there's a fourth one, because there's a question. If you believe that Jesus accomplished the restoration that God has been planning forever, there's a question that says, well, what does that mean for my life? How does that impact me on a Monday? That's the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels. Restoration applied. And so this is all Paul's letters. This is Peter. This is Hebrews and James. And all the rest of the New Testament is seeking to say, how do I apply that truth of restoration to my daily life? And then there's this one outlier way at the end called the book of Revelation. This is restoration achieved. Restoration finally achieved when God brings everything back to full circle and says, this is what it looks like to restore everything back to perfect unity. Now, here's why all that matters. Hopefully that's helpful, but more to the point for Nehemiah today. If you've got those five slices, restoration announced, anticipated, accomplished, applied, and achieved, where is Nehemiah? He's in restoration anticipated. And so all of the weeping and mourning and praying and fasting and dreaming and, spoiler alert, eventual building is looking forward to something. He's anticipating something, or better, someone. So that's important for us just to get the context on this thing. So last little bit before we jump into our text. I want to construct a rough timeline based on where we were last week just because I think it's helpful for us. Because you've been not thinking about it for six days. And so we need to kind of bring ourselves back into the ballpark a little bit. So, Nehemiah hears that the walls of Jerusalem are burnt and destroyed, and he's broken about it. He's serving in a city called Susa, which is the capital of Persia at the time. And he's broken. And then he weeps and he mourns and he fasts and he prays for five months. That's all of chapter one. Then, when he can't hide this burden anymore, it all comes spilling out in this incredibly complex, anxiety-laden conversation with his boss, the king. And incredibly, the king gives him everything he wants. He gives him time off work. He gives him letters. He gives him influence. And so where we last left our hero last week, it's really easy to imagine him doing backflips and cartwheels through the hallways of the palace because he has seen, one, that his burden has been heard, two, that his burden has been echoed back to him by the king, and then three, most importantly, that God has paved the way for this amazing thing to happen, and he's just ecstatic about it. But here's where things get serious. It's worth considering that up until now, this burden that Nehemiah has heard about is just as general and just as high level as a Facebook post or a newspaper headline with a subtitle, and we scroll past that stuff all the time. But something triggered in Nehemiah, and he saw something, and his heart did something. And that's where we are today. Act one, Nehemiah's arrival. Act one. So look with me in chapter two, verse nine. Here we go. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And you are meant to hear, dun, 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 like the plot thickens. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. So the journey from Susa, where Nehemiah lived, to Jerusalem is about 900 miles. Would have taken about four months with the kind of entourage that he has now assembled. And so we should see a huge time gap between verses 8 and verse 9. And then all of a sudden there's this pushback. Like, who are these guys? Sanballat and Tobiah. Great names. It's likely that their opposition to Nehemiah wasn't religious, but probably political and very personal. Because they had heard the stories. Tobiah's name actually means God is good. That's ironic. But they had heard the stories about Moses and how God parted the sea. They knew about how God defended and protected and empowered his people over against these overwhelming odds. They weren't strangers to the things of God. But it's likely that in the 150 years since God's people had lived in the land, that Sanballat and Tobiah gained positions of influence by disassociating, disassociating themselves from God's people to the point where they actually stood to benefit personally and financially by their oppression. I want you to see these two guys as like an Old Testament version of a slumlord. Saying like, look, if I can keep these guys down here disenfranchised, disempowered, but man, I'm living well. These are not good guys. And then here comes Nehemiah with an armed escort, letters from the king, Persian officials, and what is with all the lumber? <laughs> Here's what I want us to see. Every time the gospel moves forward, it upsets worldly systems. Expect that. We should not be surprised when there's pushback. We should be surprised when there's not. And we're going to see more about this next week, but for now, just know that a storm is brewing. Remember how we said, beware of a version of Christianity that makes you less human, like less aware, less broken, less burdened? This is why, because these guys are what that looks like. Like they're enjoying their comfort life and their positions of power because they are oppressing God's people. And so all you need to know for now, Sambalot and Tobiah, bad guys, okay? That's where we need to draw the line. So there's something about this text, though, that we need to acknowledge before we get into the real push of this story. And it's kind of the elephant in the room, and so we need to say it. Here it is. How do I know when a vision is from God or it's just my imagination? You ever ask yourself that question? Am I just making this up? Is this something that I want or something that God wants? And how do I know the difference? I get that question a lot and I ask it and wrestle with it myself. And so two comments before we move on. First, a vision is from God when it is concerned about the things that he is concerned about. A vision is from God when it is concerned about the things he is concerned about. We love to overcomplicate things, like a lot. <laughs> and we love to like second guess and like stutter step and all of that. And here's my word for you on this one. We're gonna kind of demystify this whole God's will thing for a minute. If it makes you more like Jesus and it expands his kingdom and you're using discernment, then walk forward in faith, prayerfully, wisely, with good counsel. He gave you a brain. 
Use it. Sure, God can speak from a burning bush, but he only did that once. So don't wait for one. Second thing we need to know. Don't believe that your desire and God's desire are mutually exclusive. Here's what I mean by that. I hear this a lot, and it's something that I know a lot of Christians wrestle with, and we say this. We're like, well, if I want it, it must not be God's desire. God doesn't want it. Like, here's the flaw in that thinking. Okay, as you mature, as a Christ follower, as you grow, as you follow Jesus, that maturation and that transformation extends to your affections as well. And so it's expected that as you follow Jesus, you're going to start to want the things that God wants. And so actually aligning your affections is a mark of Christian maturity. You shouldn't be scared of that. That's a good thing. Put plainly, when we seek God's glory consistently, we will see his vision clearly. So that's act one. Nehemiah takes his burden and he moves it forward into a vision. But we're going to get to the heart of this story. Act two, a midnight ride. So after he arrives in Jerusalem, this ancient homeland he's never seen, Nehemiah takes a three-day rest and then he gets to work. Look with me in verse 12. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. Now here comes the real detailed part. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and that is exactly what you think that is. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the, sh- the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so I returned. So what's happening here? Nehemiah finds this rubble city that's about 19 acres. Okay, so for a frame of reference, this is the size of Hoover Memorial Stadium with the parking lot and the baseball field all the way back through the track. Okay, not quite to the bus garage. 19 acres, that's the size that we're dealing with. And Nehemiah starts on the west side about halfway down. So if you want to imagine, that's where like the home ticket stand is. He comes out there and then he walks south, or he better, he rides south with this small group of men. And he walks all the way around the walls, inspecting it by horseback. And he goes all the way around to the far side. This is where the visitor stands would meet the track, if you're still stadiuming with me. That's a verb. And then he actually gets off, and now he comes back by foot. So try to imagine what that's like. The whole thing probably took maybe an hour at most. Again, you can almost picture it, can't you? That midnight ride through a ruined city, the first part on horseback, it had to be absolutely haunting. Here was the city he had dreamed of. He had prayed over, wept over, where his fathers and grandfathers worshipped in the temple, the men who were with him, muttering to themselves the clip-clop of horse hooves as they rode. And then the return journey on foot, more tactile this time. Nehemiah touched the walls up close. He ran his hand along the chiseling that maybe his great-grandfathers had done. Every toppled stone held a story that reached back hundreds of years. Stones that were once so carefully placed by expert craftsmen now stand where they lay after Nebuchadnezzar's siege. 
this grim terrain marked by misery of conquest and exile. And then there's the gates, these once proud gates that Solomon and other ancient kings built now lay on their sides like defeated warriors. His fingers trace the cut marks that were once fine and sharp and now dulled by weather and age and exposure. Charring an ash from Nebuchadnezzar's siege and 40 years of mold and growth, was that the faint smell of smoke or just his imagination? The whole scene, everything he touched, everything he saw, everything he smelt, everything he thought, one word comes to mind, neglect. Nobody cared. Nobody saw what he saw. And so nobody lifted a finger. The text is silent on this point, but I don't ever get the sense that Nehemiah looked up to heaven and said, God, what is this? This is what I've been called to? Are you kidding me? I don't ever think he says that because Nehemiah has this exceptionally rare gift, the balance between dogged determination and radical realism. He is resolute and he is strong, but he's also very clear to see things as they are. He's not an idealist. He doesn't get discouraged, but he's definitely aware of what needs done. And this kind of resolve fits what he tells the people who noticed his absence, wondered where he had been, and are now waiting for him when he gets back from this little midnight excursion. Join me in verse 16. And the officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now stop for a second. That's pretty amazing. So he looks out and he says, all these people who are actually going to do the work, I didn't say a thing to them, which is pretty remarkable because like when I have a good idea, it's like out of my mouth in like five seconds, but he shows remarkable discernment. And then verse 17, I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And like turning 150 years of history on its head, Nehemiah takes all that collective shame, decades of despondency, the weight of oppression, the callousness of neglect, and he says, let's fix this. How do you do that? How does that actually happen? Well, Nehemiah has a secret weapon that shows up in verse 18. Here's what he says. And I told them, of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And I also, the words of the king had spoken to me, and they said, let us rise and build, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. What's Nehemiah doing here? When it came time to leverage all of his influence explain this very conspicuous entourage of army officers, horsemen, and a truckload of lumber from the king's fortress and and forests. He didn't resort to political savvy or like this high rhetoric or this like strong arm vision casting thing. What did he do? He did the most basic, simple, and bafflingly uncomplex thing you could. He just says, I'm not gonna talk to you about how good God is. That's all he does. He says, look, guys, I, I know 
that you've been going through this dark season for a while. I know it feels like God's been silent. I know it feels like God hasn't been listening. But let me tell you how good God is. His hand is upon me. Let me tell you about the conversations he's opened, the doors that he just busted through. Look at what God has been able to do. Can we talk about God's goodness rather than my plan? That's a very refreshing stance, isn't it? When we seek God's glory consistently, we will see God's vision clearly. And I love how the text reads. It's like these three things just happen in very quick succession. He says, I told them of the goodness of God and the words of the king, and they said, let's do this. Like three notes in a song, just boom, boom, boom. I love how that just sets up. And that little phrase at the end, they strengthened their hands for the work, is a really cool word in Hebrew, strengthened. And we're gonna say it together. It's called this, kazak. Yeah, doesn't it sound cool? Like kazak. They kazak their hands, right? So it's this old word. Here's what it means. It means like this gripping resolve, right? God says it to Joshua way back where three times in as many verses, he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous, kazak, right? Samson uses it when he says, Lord, remember me and strengthen me for this moment. David in Psalm 27 When he says, be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord, that's this idea. It's this resolve, like, God's going to do something. Because bonus points, not as just a resolve word, it's always used in anticipation of what God is going to do. And so that word choice is super important there, because God's about to do something. So what should we take from that? The source for your strength is not your ability, it is God's goodness. It is not that you are awesome. It is that God is good and he is faithful. But the story doesn't end there. This isn't all roses and sunshine. And so as the clouds begin to gather, act three, a gathering storm. So up until now, three guys have been waiting in the wings, just kind of watching and waiting and thinking and conspiring. And here they are. Take a look. In verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard this, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now watch this. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, no right, no claim in Jerusalem. One thing we need to pull out of this for now. There is an enemy, make no mistake, who always resists God's work. And in this case, it's in the form of these three guys, these rulers and governors. But we shouldn't see just human activity here. We should see something deeper going on. Because when Satan pushes against God's work, he always uses three things, insinuation, innuendo, and flat-out lies. Insinuation, innuendo, and flat-out lies. And it's exactly what these guys are doing right here. And don't you love, though, how Nehemiah just, like, slams the door on them? It's like the best thing ever. He goes, no, no, no. The God of heaven is going to make us prosper. You have no right, you have no claim, and you have no portion here. These are all legal terms. When taken together means step the heck off. It's great. We should be really empowered by that because sometimes shut your mouth, I'm following Jesus is a very gospel response. I don't like to talk that way because we're from the Midwest. (laughs) 
we're nice here, right? But sometimes just going, nah, -uh, I'm following Jesus. That's a gospel thing to say. You just better really mean it when you say it. Because here's the thing about burdens and visions. Burdens and visions always attract critics. And you want to know where critics start? They criticize your heart and your intentions. And that's why prayer is so important. Because God doesn't bless ideas. He blesses people who have sweated out in the prayer closet. And know him. And are formed by him. And are consumed with a passion for his glory more than their own. That's what led Nehemiah to the point where he could say that. As if to say, look, you want to square up in the ring with me? Fine, but you're not squaring up in the ring with me. You're squaring up against the almighty God of the universe. So good luck, guys. And do you see this theme kind of emerging in Nehemiah's life? God put this on my heart, act one. God is good to me, act two. And God's going to do this thing, not me, act three. When we seek God's glory consistently, we will see his vision clearly. And just to whet the appetite for next week, these guys don't go away. Okay, it's about to get a little bit worse. But Nehemiah just clears the battle lines and makes sure everyone knows what's going on. So, where do we go from here? Just like last week, I've got three questions that I'm just going to go, here you go, and I will let you deal with them. So, first question, if you're going to seek God's glory to see his vision, here you go. Are you being obedient in the small things? Are you being obedient in the small things? I'm struck by something. Nehemiah could have said way back in chapter one. Nehemiah had other options, right? When he heard this horrible report about Jerusalem and its gates and its walls, he could have said, ah, that sounds bad. Um, let me call a guy. <laughs> or like, mm, I wish there was something I could do to help, but see, like, I'm here with, with, with the king and... And that would have been the expected response, right? Because what do cupbearers know about civil engineering projects? Not a whole lot. But he doesn't say any of that, does he? He gets here and he says, we are in trouble. Let us build the wall that we may no longer suffer. Like we, dude, you've been here for like three days. But at that point, obedience was such a part of Nehemiah's life in the small things that he wasn't the cupbearer with a cushy job attending a king. He was a fellow worshiper ready to sling some concrete before the king. And so what's that underneath all that? Burdens become visions. When we stop being concerned about something and start to take responsibility for something. I'm not just concerned about it, like, oh, that's bad. But now I'm responsible for it. This is my neighborhood. This is my family. This is my school. And I've got to do something about it. That's when things get serious. So how do you know where to start? Good question. Glad you asked. Here you go. Start small. Start in the small things. Nehemiah's vision was not born overnight. It was born in the prayer closet, tested in a throne room, and confirmed in these small steps of obedience. So let me press in. How is your walk with Jesus? How is your walk with Jesus? Are you prayerful? Are you consistently aware of your sin? And are you consistently amazed by the wonder of grace? Because if you're not, you're not going to be able to walk very far. That's why Christians look like hypocrites. Because we take on these grand visions and doing these things that were never true in our lives. So start small. Are you prayerful? Does his word matter to you? Do you actually read this thing? He's not going to guide you much further than this. Because he just said, here, this is what I am. This is what I'm about. 
And so read it. Do you see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Are you loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, and good, and full of faith, self-controlled, and gentle? Do you see those things in your life? Do others affirm those things in you? Be faithful in the small things, and then he'll give you the big things. So that's the first question. Are you obedient in the small things? Second question for you to consider. How close are you willing to get? How close are you willing to get? This is about proximity. This hunger for God's glory pushed Nehemiah to a place where he's not only at professional risk because he just gave up his job, but now he's at personal peril because these guys want to kill him. But he leaves like this cushy throne room, upward mobility, all this security to take his time, his talents, and his treasures to a people he's never seen, a city he can't even recognize, and a cause that's not going to benefit him at all. What's with that? That's crazy. People don't do that kind of stuff. The theological word for that is incarnational. Incarnational. It means that you cannot love from a distance. It means you've got to be among those you want to save. It means you've got to give up something to gain something. You're never going to see impact in people's lives that you won't get close to. And you will never see change until you're also willing to see the hurt. But beyond all that, here's why proximity matters. Proximity matters because it so closely mirrors the heart of Jesus. John's gospel starts out like this. It says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Do you hear that? like moved into the neighborhood. This is Jesus. And then when Jesus was walking among the crowds, here's how Matthew says it. He says, when he saw them, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. This is Jesus all day long. Jesus always chose to be close when he was the only person ever who could have chosen to be removed and he would be totally justified in doing so. But he laid it all down to get scary close to messed up people like us because he loves us. If the world is a burning building, Jesus is running into it, not out of it, and so must we as Christ followers. But here's the challenge. It's 2020, and we live in a keep-scrolling culture, right? Ah, I've seen that headline. Something else. Another group of offenders, right? And we don't want to look at it because it just becomes white noise. But for the Christian burdened with the things of God, there is no substitute for proximity. And so that's the question. How close are you willing to get? Third question, who's going with you? Now, I am not a fan of fortune cookie uh, proverbs because they usually make me feel like oddly convicted, just to be honest with you. I'm like, I don't think that's true. But there's one that says this. Old Chinese proverb says this. says, if your vision is for one year, plant rice. If your vision is for 10 years, plant trees. Your vision is for 100 years, plant people. Who's going with you? See, the real art of Nehemiah's leadership is that he understood that the who is way more important than the how. And so he brought people in. He knew that God's plan is always bigger than one person's job. Because if you think you're going to do what God's called you to do and you're the only one who's involved, I want to challenge you and say that your vision is probably too small. Think bigger. There's something really beautiful about that. The kind of leader that can say, hey, let me sweat it out in the prayer closet. Let me agonize over this thing. Let me bring this up and kind of clear the way and see if this is God's will. And you guys come alongside me here. 
Now let's make this thing happen together. That's not about influence and inspiration as much as it is about God's sovereignty preparing the way. Andy Stanley talks about this in a book. He says, if God has put a vision in your heart, it's very likely that he's also putting vision in this, or the same vision in the hearts of people around you. That is an incredibly powerful idea because the only kind of visions worth seeing through are ones that are bigger than me anyway. So that's the third question. Who's going with you? So as we put the cap on Nehemiah for today, here's what I want you to see. This idea of seeking God's glory consistently Everything Nehemiah does, he traces it back to his hunger for God to be known. You know what I love about that is it sounds an awful lot like what we're about here. Making much of Jesus every day to everyone. Now, Nehemiah didn't know his name because he's back here in this restoration anticipated season of biblical history. But we know his name. And his name is Jesus. And so everything that Nehemiah looked forward to, we have the joy of worshiping this carpenter's son who grew up and fixes broken things and mends broken people. Sure glad I know him, aren't you? Let's pray. Our Father, you are so good to us. You're good because you gave us your son so we don't have to worry. God, so many people for so many hundreds and thousands of years looked forward to something that would make sense of their present, that would give them hope for a future and clean up their past. And so, Father, we can stand here at this point in time and say, yes, you have sent him and his name is Jesus and he is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of our lives. And so, God, take our lives and use them for your glory above all. We love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at nchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.